like to invite you to turn in the scriptures to Matthew chapter 1, or if you're using the program, you can just turn back to the scripture reading, and we'll be reading Matthew 1 in its entirety in just a minute. Fall on your knees. It's a good summary of the gospel according to Matthew. The gospel according to Matthew is what I've called a discipleship manifesto. It's a public declaration of what it means to follow Jesus. And Matthew presents Jesus as king, as God's chosen king. He wants every reader to fall on your knees because Jesus is the king who's going to rule on earth forever as king of all kings. He wants every one of his readers to become a lifelong follower of Jesus. Now, Matthew chapters 1 and 2 are where Matthew records Jesus' genealogy, his birth, what happened in the uh, few years after his birth. And they are one of the most popular, maybe the most popular, second most popular behind Luke, seasonal stories. But Matthew wasn't recording this in order to be a nostalgic seasonal story. Matthew was a tax collector for the Roman Empire. He met Jesus and his life was turned around. He himself became a committed follower of Jesus. And he wrote this account of Jesus' life, including his birth, so that every one of his readers would experience something like him, and that is commit themselves entirely to Jesus. That's Matthew's agenda. His agenda is not to enhance our Christmas season. His agenda is to change our lives, to turn our lives upside down. If you've already followed Jesus, his objective is to strengthen your faith so that you will follow the king no matter what it costs. Now, his account begins with a genealogical record. And you might think, oh, a genealogy that is boring. What did Matthew do? Did he just like research about Jesus and find some, you know, journal that was left by an ancestor? And he had to fill space because he needed to call it actually a book. So he included this as a space filler because he had found it in his research. You'd be totally wrong. Matthew's genealogy is his attention-grabbing introduction It is riveting for readers who understand what has taken place before it. I'm going to read now Matthew 1, beginning in verse 1. The book of the generation of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob. Jacob begat Judah and his brethren. And Judah begat Perez and Zerah of Tamar. And Perez begat Hezron, and Hezron begat Ram, and Ram begat Aminadab. Aminadab begat Nashon, and Nashon begat Salmon. Salmon begat Boaz of Rahab, and Boaz begat Obed of Ruth. And Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David the king. And David begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Uriah. And Solomon begat Rehoboam, and Rehoboam begat Abijah, and Abijah begat Asa, and Asa begat Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat begat Joram, and Joram begat Uzziah, and Uzziah begat Jotham, Jotham begat Ahaz, and Ahaz begat Hezekiah, Hezekiah begat Manasseh, Manasseh begat Ammon, and Ammon begat Josiah, Josiah begat Jeconiah and his brethren at the time of the carrying away to Babylon. And after the carrying away to Babylon, 
Jeconiah begat Shealtiel. Shealtiel begat Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel begat Abiud. And Abiud begat Eliakim. And Eliakim begat Azor. And Azor begat Zadok. And Zadok begat Akim. And Akim begat Eliud. And Eliud begat Eliezer. And Eliezer begat Mathon. And Mathon begat Jacob. And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who's called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham unto David are 14 generations. From David unto the carrying away in Babylon, 14 generations. And from the carrying away to Babylon to Christ, to the Messiah, 14 generations. And now I repeat what was read earlier. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place like this. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. The godly reaction for presumed betrayal was divorce. But Joseph determined to act in compassion and divorce her privately rather than in a public court of law. But as Joseph considered these things, verse 20, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, the ESV ends the quotation here. I think the angel's quotation actually goes to, uh, to the end of verse 23. All this has taken place to fulfill what the Lord has already spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. I think that's the end of the dream, or the, the revelation of the angel in the dream. When Joseph woke from sleep, verse 24, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. That is, he obeyed courageously. He took Mary as his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. In other words, he immediately ended the engagement. He married her, but they didn't have sexual relations until after Jesus was born. The last statement of the chapter, and he called his name Jesus. Wow. What an introduction. Now, Matthew introduces us to Jesus in the exact way that he does as a way of saying, this human is a man you must worship. This man is someone to whom you must commit your life. I'd say that's the main idea here. Matthew introduces us to Jesus in the exact way he does with his genealogy, with the circumstances surrounding his birth and how he got his name, as a way of saying, commit yourself to Jesus. He's compelling us to commit our lives to this man. I want to briefly explain both facets, how the family genealogy does that, and then how his birth and naming does that. Matthew is introducing us to Jesus the way he does as a way of saying, commit your life to this man. First, in verses 1 to 17, Matthew recounts Jesus' family history to urge you to commit your life to him. 
the first statement is that he's a descendant of David and Abraham. That summarizes the entire Old Testament, which longed for a descendant of Abraham who was also a descendant of David, who would restore blessings to this cursed planet and would also reign forever on earth. By noting his connection with Abraham, he's saying, this one is the offspring of Abraham who's going to restore blessings to earth, to all peoples on earth. This is the one. By noting his connection with David, Matthew is saying, this is the one who has been prophesied to reign forever on this planet. But Jesus is not only connected with Abraham and David. If you noticed, there is a lot of names in that list. Matthew is emphasizing that Jesus is connected with a, with a bunch of wicked people. Matthew includes names like Manasseh's. Manasseh was a horrible idolater. He was a king who got rid of people ruthlessly who disagreed with him. Matthew includes in this list famous compromisers like Solomon, Jehoshaphat, and most notably he includes four women in Jesus' ancestry, all of whom had sordid pasts, like Tamar, who acted like a prostitute to seduce her father-in-law, Rahab, who was a prostitute, Ruth, who had been a Chemosh-worshipping Moabite, or Uriah's wife, who committed adultery with David against her faithful husband. And that's not even to mention Abraham and David themselves. The ones who head the list had notable times in their life in which they were horribly inconsistent believers. Jesus didn't come from a decent family. He came from this family, a disreputable family. And that is a huge encouragement for us. Should be. It teaches us that God can work in our lives. He doesn't mind associating with us, no matter how decent or disreputable our family. So many people wrongly think that their biological family determines their lives. That is not so. Matthew's point is, you don't need a good family. You need Jesus. Right? But even more, Matthew includes Jesus' family line to teach us that Jesus is a king who is full of grace. Full of grace. I love the way J.C. Ryle puts it. He says, if the Lord Jesus was not ashamed to be born of a woman whose pedigree contains such names as those we read here, we need not think that he will be ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. What an encouragement that Jesus had such a disreputable biological family assures me that he is not ashamed to call someone like me a brother if I will take refuge in him. I want to conclude with my final point. 
but I need to take just a minute and give a, give a little illustration. This first introduction of Matthew is life-shaping. I want to recount just some of the story of a man named Louis. Matthew 1.1 changed his life. Louis, in an interview, said, I came from a Jewish family. I attended a conservative Jewish synagogue for seven years in preparation for my bar mitzvah. Although we considered these studies to be important, our family's faith didn't really affect our everyday life very much. We didn't observe the Sabbath. We didn't have a kosher home. Louis says, The issue of the Jewish Messiah never came up in my family. I don't even remember it being a matter of, of, of interest in my Hebrew school. The name of Jesus in my childhood was only ever used derogatorily. My impressions of Jesus came from seeing Catholic churches where there was a cross and a crown of thorns and a pierced side and blood coming from his head, and it didn't make any sense to me. Why would you worship a man on a cross with nails in his hands and feet? I never thought Jesus had any connection to the Jewish people, not even once. I just thought he was the God of the Gentiles. I thought Christians were Gentiles, and I had to beware of anti-Semitism among them. In fact, later, when the New Testament was first presented to me, I sincerely thought it was basically going to be a handbook on how to hate Jews. As a 17-year-old, Louis experienced the divorce of his parents, and then he was drafted within that next year to Vietnam, 1967. He felt God to be very impersonal and distant and so there in Vietnam he started exploring eastern religions his interviewer put it like this Louis returned home from Vietnam with a newfound taste for marijuana and plans to become a Buddhist priest following a period of depression and experimentation with LSD Louis decided to move to California for a new start and in 1969 Louis met a group of Christians on a sidewalk outside a storefront he told the Christians, there's no God out there. We're God. I'm God. You're God. You just have to realize it. One Christian said, well, if you're God, can you create a rock? Louis said he held up his empty hand and said, here's a rock. To which the Christian replied, see, that's the difference between you and the true God. When the true God creates something, everyone can see it. It's objective, not subjective. One of the Christians then mentioned Jesus, and Louis immediately changed his tone from being a reality is all in your mind to being a I can't believe in Jesus, I'm a Jew. One of the leaders in the Christian group then asked, Then what do you do with all the prophecies about the Messiah? And Louis had no clue what this guy was talking about. So the guy gave him a Bible, and Louis agreed to read only the Old Testament. Pretty soon, this skeptical Louis was reading a portion of the Old Testament every single day, and he was looking for prophecies. He eventually came to Isaiah 53. Louis says, I came to the conclusion that this was a fraud, that Christians had rewritten the Old Testament and twisted Isaiah's words to make it sound as if the prophet was foreshadowing Jesus. So I asked my stepmother to send me a Jewish Bible, and I found it said the same thing. 
Louis said that in that first read-through of the Old Testament as a skeptic, he found 50 promises regarding the Messiah in the Old Testament. He says, finally, I decided to turn the page to the New Testament and read just the first page. He said, with trepidation, I slowly turned to Matthew as I looked up to heaven, waiting for the lightning bolt to strike. Matthew's initial words leapt off the page. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I thought, what? Son of Abraham, son of David? It was all fitting together. He says, I couldn't put it down. I read through the rest of the Gospels, and I realized this wasn't a handbook for the American Nazi party. It was an interaction between Jesus and the Jewish community. I got to the book of Acts. This was incredible. They were trying to figure out how the Jews could bring the story of Jesus to the Gentiles. Talk about role reversal. Louis didn't personally turn from his sin and trust Jesus immediately. Instead, he describes a process of investigating and becoming more open and becoming more convinced. He recalls, I realized that if I were to accept Jesus into my life, there would have to be some significant changes in the way I was living. I'd have to deal with the drugs. I'd have to deal with the sex and so forth. I didn't understand that God would help me make those changes. I thought I had to clean up my life on my own. And while he was studying photography in college, Louis finally came to the end of his struggle and said in his heart, God, I accept Jesus into my life. I don't understand what I'm supposed to do with him, but I want him. I've pretty much made a mess of my life, and I need you to change me. And God ended up, little by little, changing this man. Louis would go on in the next decades to plant a church, then to teach at Biola, and then lead and walk through the Bible seminars. Matthew 1.1 was absolutely life-changing for him. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament all of the promises that had been coming for thousands of years. Matthew also recounts Jesus' birth and naming in verses 18 to 25. He recounts his birth and his naming to urge you to commit your life to him. Matthew explains that Jesus was born to the Virgin Mary. He was miraculously conceived by the work of the Holy Spirit. You see that emphasized in verses 18 and 20. It was by the Holy Spirit of God. Now, many people today suggest that this is just kind of piggybacking on Greek mythology where one of the gods comes down and has sex with a human woman and she gives birth to a demigod, a, 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 a superhuman not at all. It's interesting that Matthew indicates that the conception by God's Spirit didn't take Mary's virginity. This isn't a God having sex with a woman. She's still a virgin. Instead, however the Holy Spirit worked, it totally preserved her virginity. This was a virginal conception. Furthermore, the entire way that Matthew writes the account, it is written in a way that promotes sexual chastity. That sexual intimacy is only appropriate 
within the covenant of marriage, and it is always inappropriate outside. It's unlike anything that the Greek world would have known. Jesus was born to a virgin. And this is the most straightforward way that God could identify Jesus as fully God and fully man. Love the way Craig Blomberg of Denver Seminary explains it. He says, the virginal conception is a very fitting way to reinforce the conviction that Jesus is fully God. That is, God is his father. He has divine paternity. And fully man, he has human maternity. Fully God, fully man. Matthew also explains that Jesus was named Jesus by God as a way of pointing to Jesus. This is huge. Look at verse 21. The Greek is actually forceful in highlighting the he and putting it first. Call his name Jesus, which means Jehovah saves, because he will save his people from their sins. He's the one who will save his people from their sins. Jesus' name didn't point away from himself to the Lord. It pointed to himself as the Lord who would do the saving. It's a way of saying, name him Jesus. Because this baby's going to save. Name him Jesus. Because he's Jehovah who saves. And that's emphasized again by the angel when the angel says, yeah, this is fulfilling Isaiah's words. This is Emmanuel, God with us. Craig Keener of Asbury Seminary explains, Matthew clearly understands God with us to mean that Jesus is truly God. He's virginally conceived to show he's fully God and fully man. He's given the name Jesus explaining this is truly God. So Jesus is the one who has come to save humans from the guilt of our disobedience. Verse 21 says he will save his people from their sins. He had to be both God and man. He had to be a human who could stand in the place of humans as their representative, as our representative. He had to be human so that he could bear our punishment. And yet, as God the Son, Jesus, only as God, could provide a payment that would satisfy the just wrath of God the Father. He had to be both God and man in order to bridge, in order to reconcile us with God. So Jesus was born... He lived, he died, he rose again, he is returning, all to save us from our sins. This is the message of the gospel. And the most appropriate way for us to respond to this on Christmas Eve, and on every other night of the year, and on every morning of the year, the best way for us to respond, the most appropriate way for us to respond is to worship him, as we just sang fall on our knees. That, of course, includes praising him with carols and with songs. We love doing that as a church. But it's more than that. It involves total life submission to him. It involves us saying to him, whether we're singing, whether we're praying, whether we're working, 
no matter what we're doing, we're saying, Lord Jesus, all I am and all I have are yours. That's worship. It's total life committal. We are committing ourselves to him over and over. Some of you here need to do that for the first time. You're understanding tonight for the first time who Jesus really is. He is God with us, and you need to submit to him as God, your only hope of being saved. Nothing you can do can save you. Jesus can save you, and you need to take refuge in him. Some of you might be here, and you're like Louie, and you need to begin a process of investigation Some of you are scared to investigate because it might change your life. I urge you to begin that process. Some of you are like me, and you need to be reminded of these truths, and you need to say, Lord Jesus, there are so many areas of my life that I need to commit more, I need to commit better, I need to recommit, I need to keep committing myself to you. Lord, who I am, what I have, the responsibilities you've given me. I need to live for you. You, Jesus, are God come to save. You, Jesus, are God with us. You deserve my entire life. I'm going to fall on my knees again and commit myself to you. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray that Jesus would be exalted for who he truly is. He is your son. Come to save us from our sins. And I pray that he'd be glorified as more people trust him for the first time or trust him for the 10,000th time. God, I pray that you would keep our faith strong if we are followers of Jesus. And I pray that you would call us if we're not. For Jesus' glory and for our good, I pray. Amen.